This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 to 15, and Titus chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Here's the word of the Lord. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in a respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and, with, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through the childbearing if they continue in faith in, in love and holiness with self-control. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. Amen. Uh, thank you, Pastor Jacob. Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for that prayer. Uh, I want to welcome all of you. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, well, today I think uh, our 9 o'clock congregation just as large as our 11 o'clock, but I know that there are about 30 households or so tuning in online, so I want to welcome all of them as well, especially to all the children who are watching. If you can wave at me once again, let's keep this trend going. Um, also, I want to welcome all the youth students who are joining us. This is a joint service, so if you're a youth student, uh, we're grateful that you can be part of our worship today. Uh, thank you for joining and uh, pray that God would minister to you uh, through his word today. Uh, let me also say happy Mother's Day to all our moms who are with us uh, today. Can we all show our appreciation once again to all our moms? I don't do this every year, but because it is Mother's Day and because our culture has taken gender confusion to the next level over the past couple of years, I chose to prepare a message titled, The Virtues of a Godly Woman. So what does that mean? Well, it means you can expect this message to be a very counter-cultural one, uh, but also a very important one for you to consider, especially uh, if you're a youth member. Please pay attention to what I'm about to share, okay, because you will not hear this stuff in your schools or from your teachers. They are not allowed to utter such words. Uh, based off of our passages today, uh, I'm going to talk about three virtues that the scriptures speak highly of as they relate to women. Okay, number one is the virtue of modesty. Okay, when you think of modesty, you can think of it as something opposed to the spirit of self-promotion that we often see in our culture. You know, I like to flaunt what I have, so I'm going to just do it. I'm going to flaunt everything I have, all of my assets, you know, physical, whatever, um, you know, on social media, I'll flaunt everything. Uh, modesty is what God values, 
Okay? Number two, the virtue of submission. Okay? And, and this particular virtue stands in stark contrast to the popular image of the dominatrix, right? or the dominant female who never follows orders from any other guy. Uh, she makes up her own rules. Uh, also, think of our culture's push to eliminate all gender distinctions. Right? There's absolutely no regard in this cultural moment of ours for how God ordered life to be. Right? A spirit of submission to God has become much more difficult to find in anyone in our day. And so I'll talk about submission, right? the value, the virtue of submission. Uh, number three, the virtue of self-sacrifice. Okay, and this can be contrasted with this idea of self-fulfillment. I'm going to pursue my personal agenda. Okay, I don't care what God says. But I'm going to fulfill my agenda, pursue my agenda so that I can feel fulfilled. And so instead of self-sacrifice, there's this push towards self-fulfillment. All right, so part one, modesty. I won't take too much time on this one, but I do want to share a few things. Uh, a few years ago, uh, there were some former students of mine from Philly who visited from, I guess, for a few days. And I, I commented on how I didn't like how one of the guys was dressed, okay? <laughs> he was clearly trying to look like some K-pop star. Uh, so he would put up, or he would put makeup on. Okay, he had all this makeup, he, he pale skin, and I guess that was a trend back in the day. I'm sure it is still now. Uh, but he basically would make himself look like a girl. Right? Clearly, he looked more like a girl than a guy, uh, if anyone objectively saw him. Uh, he looked pretty, okay? He looked pretty. So after I made that comment, another person interjected, uh, saying, well, there's the conservative pastor coming out commenting on people's clothing. I held my emotions in. <laughs> I mean, these are my former youth group students, right? So I was a bit discouraged, actually, when I realized that we couldn't even agree on the simple point that it was inappropriate for a guy to look like a girl. You know, back when I was their youth pastor, I did used to enforce some... Not, not a whole lot, just a few sensible clothing policies for our youth gatherings. That included Sunday worship, our Friday night Bible studies, you know, our youth retreats. Uh, but they were nothing crazy, you know, to give you a couple examples. Uh, I told them, hey, you know, please do not wear short pants that are so short and tight where I can see your butt cheek hanging out, okay? Please, please avoid those, okay? I thought that was a sensible policy, you know? You get no amens? Uh, or look, I, I, don't, I don't care what you wear at your family vacation on your family beach trip. If you wear a bikini, I don't care. But at our summer retreat, okay, please do not try to impress other, other guys. Don't, don't try to expose so much of yourselves, right? Sensible policies like that, okay? And so that was kind of me. So look, modesty, if you think of modesty, the virtue of modesty, it definitely has something to do with the way we dress. But modesty isn't only about clothing. 
Right? The way we dress is simply one, one of many ways in which modesty is lived out in our daily lives. Uh, I thought it would help if we thought of a gentle and quiet spirit as akin to a modest spirit. Okay? So think of a gentle and quiet spirit. To me, that's it's really close to basically saying, okay, that, that's what a modest spirit is. Because what is the opposite of a gentle and quiet spirit? How would you, how would you express what the opposite, or describe the opposite of a gentle and quiet spirit? What comes to mind is a loud, boisterous, self-promoting, and obnoxious spirit. That's what comes to my mind. How about you? How about you? What comes to your mind? Right. I, bet, I bet you know some people like that in your life who are loud, boisterous, self-promoting, and obnoxious. And you would never describe them to be gentle and quiet in spirit. Right? You would not say to them, oh, that's, that's a modest person over there. They're the opposite. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4 echoes our passage here in Timothy says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but, the contrast, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, pay attention, this is what God deems beautiful, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Right, so think about it. Like if you possess a humble, a gentle, a quiet spirit, right, of course you're not going to be someone who flaunts oneself. Right? You will be modest in all areas of your life, including the way you dress. But if you're a prideful and an insecure person, Right? You're going to have a tendency to self-promote and self-promote. And so you'll be preoccupied with social media. Every opportunity you have, you'll try to say something positive about yourself. Or you'll take swipes and jabs at others to put others down so that you'll look better than those around you. That'll be you. Right? And, and your preoccupation with yourself will also spill out into the way you dress. The late John Stott puts it like this as he's uh, reflecting upon this passage in Timothy. Paul's overriding concern was that the way Christians supported themselves would not detract from, but enhance their gospel mission. And so for him, modesty was a gospel. It was related to the gospel. It had a close, I guess it was a, it was a outflow, it was a practical application of, of the gospel, which you believed about the gospel. In other words, he's saying, you know, or he's wanting us to, to wrestle with the question, do we as Christians exist to draw attention to ourselves, or do we exist to draw attention to the gospel? And that question, in my mind, gets to the heart of why God calls us toward modesty. Uh, I thought it'd be appropriate to share some female voices here, um, because, like, who am I? And who is John Stott, right, to address what a woman is, right? So he, here's a female voice then, right? Uh, she's, she, I think uh, her name is Nicole Whitaker, and I, I, I believe that she's also someone who understands uh, the importance of modesty. She writes, 
Why do we make such a big deal about modesty? Is it because we're conservative or moral people? Is it because we have personal preferences about how women should dress? No. The reason is the gospel. Modesty is important because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, as Christians, have a gospel mission. Not only to preach Christ, but to live in a way consistent, consistent with our profession of faith. May there be no contradiction between our gospel message and the clothes we wear. And may our modest dress be a witness to the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, God is not saying that women ought to dress in sloppy clothing. So don't, don't take it that way. Uh, but he is saying that we ought not to be preoccupied with our clothes lest we draw more attention to ourselves wherever we go and draw attention away from the Lord. This is particularly important when we're gathered here as God's people to worship him. Especially important. Okay, that's why it's, it's, it may be appropriate for you to wear a swimsuit on the beach, but incredibly inappropriate for you to wear a swimsuit in sanctuary. Right? Because here especially, our preoccupation ought to be in drawing attention, our attention to the Lord and not to each other. You understand that dynamic? And look, my intention here is not to produce a bunch of legalistic fashion cops in the church. I, I really do not want to create such a culture. Right? It'll suffocate all of us. Um, if there's any enforcement that ought to be done, it should be first done by the parents at home and by our children's director and by our youth pastor. Right? When, when, when our people are younger, that's when we need to train them to think biblically about modesty. I cannot be going around enforcing full-grown adults. Right? Go change. It's inappropriate. Right? That would be ridiculous. Right? Uh, but, you know, the emphasis, I also want to say, the emphasis should always be placed on why we ought to dress modestly, not on what exactly we should or shouldn't wear. Because I think, I think if you understand the reason behind it, right, it would make a whole lot more sense. Right? I, I, I think it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Right? If you understand God's heart behind modesty, doesn't it make sense? Part two, let's uh, think about submission together a bit here. <clears throat> Our passage says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Some controversial words there by the apostle. And then Titus also, Titus 2, verse 3 and 5, 3 through 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or, or slaves to much wine. Uh, uh, just as, as a side note, just, it's not in my notes here, but just, it came to mind as I was reading this. I, I, I have noticed, okay, the, the older men and women get... Okay, I'm looking at my peers, too, around the country. The older we get, the more prone we are to pick up the beer and the wine and even the hard liquor, okay, and to medicate ourselves from life's troubles, right? I see this a lot even in older women, and so this is true. This is why such a passage is here, okay? Uh, life gets harder and harder, and, and your bodies decay. They break down, and so you'll be more depressed in your older age. And where do you go? You go to the liquor cabinet. Right? Just a side note, right? It's coming for many of you. Older women, they're not, not to be slanders or slaves in much wine. They are to teach what is good. And look, 
And so train, this is part of your responsibility too, you older women in the church, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, gasp. Look what it says next. Working at home, I'll be crucified for that, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Men's worried, worried for me now. Someone after, after, after 9 o'clock service said, Pastor Paul, we'll be praying for you after service. Okay. Uh, look. On one extreme, you have people who consider this kind of language to be incredibly sexist, outdated, and misogynistic. Right? They would say things like, this is surely a product of a writer who has been shaped by a patriarchal mindset. And so these kinds of ideas, they, sh- they can't apply to us now. I mean, we're enlightened. You know, we, we know better. That, that's one extreme. On the other extreme, you have people who want to apply this passage in a way that leaves absolutely no room for women to speak at all in the, ch- in the church. And both are wrong. And, and so you don't want to fall into either of these two extremes. I think you should all be thankful that we're part of a theological tradition that affirms equality between or among the genders, between the genders, but not the kind of radical equality that does away with any role distinctions. You know, we believe, to put it simply, that we are equal in being as we stand before God but we're not equal in function or in role. There are distinctions that God has built into our relational dynamic. And look, we hold to such views not because we believe that men are superior, but because we believe that this, is, this was and always will be God's design for humanity, not just for the church, but for humanity. This is, this is how God ordained things to be. This was his wisdom from the very beginning. You see, men, men were supposed to be humble and courageous and servant-like spiritual leaders from the beginning. But what happened? Sin, it ruined us. And now the majority of men are either spiritual wimps who lack the courage to lead with conviction or they're selfish, inconsiderate, abusive barbarians who just use women to fulfill their own needs. That's a reality. And men who abuse their God-given authority in these ways are guilty. They're guilty of practicing counterfeit headship. It's true. You know, one reason why it's so hard to teach the truth about biblical headship and submission these days is because men throughout history have abused their headship and have done some terrible things, and we all know that. But listen, just because something has been abused doesn't mean that we should discontinue its use. You understand that? I heard one pastor recently offer this very helpful analogy. It made a lot of sense to me. You know, it's like when you go to a store and you pull out a $100 bill or even a $20 bill, what does the guy at the, or the woman at the, cash register do, right? They, they put it up against light. Why do they do that? 
They're checking to see if this thing is a counterfeit or not, right? But have you noticed no one checks whether <clears throat> the brown paper bag at Safeway or Giants is a counterfeit? Right? Do you know why that is? Because no one counterfeits things that are relatively worthless. The things in life that are counterfeited are things that are valuable and precious. The reason why headship and submission have been abused and counterfeited throughout history is not because they are false ideas. It's because they are so valuable and precious. You're supposed to say, wow. Okay. So men, you know, men, yes, we struggle to practice biblical headship. But women, too, struggle to practice biblical submission. You know, most women either end up becoming mindlessly passive and overly needy, or they become unpleasantly domineering in a very manipulative way. You know, wouldn't you agree? It's really hard to find godly men who feel confident about how they're supposed to practice biblical headship. And it's, it's equally hard to find godly women who feel confident and, and comfortable about practicing godly submission. You know, more often than not, there seems to be this awkwardness and uncertainty about it. No one's really sure, right? But both men and women are confused, and I get it. You know, but why do you think that most people are not quite sure how to practice these things? Here's one way to think about it. I, I didn't think of this myself, by the way, but it, it's a helpful way to think of it. Imagine, imagine a guy getting into a life-altering crash. Before the crash, he was perfectly normal. Right? He was able to function like any other human being. Right? No issues eating, no, no issues going to the bathroom, no issues walking or running. But after the crash, he lost even the basic ability to walk and even lift a spoon and put it to his mouth. So what does that person need? That kind of person needs to receive regular physical therapy and go through this awkward phase of learning how to walk again and learning how to eat again. Well, guess what? That's all of us because we all experienced a crash, a cosmic one. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, all of humanity crashed with him. And we're all going through this awkward phase of learning how to relate to each other the way God intended us to. That is our common struggle. And I personally do not think we're ever going to get it right in this lifetime. We're not going to ever perfect it. But that doesn't mean we should give up on our physical therapy, right? That doesn't mean we should give up on the idea. So brothers and sisters... I beg you, do not be swayed by the kind of feminism that says this idea of headship and submission is an evil and oppressive ploy through which men want to take control of women. We really need to detox ourselves from these kinds of lies that we're bombarded with every day. Consider the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's word reveals to us that the Son and Holy Spirit willingly submits to the will of the Father. But that doesn't make them inferior to the Father, right? 
They're equal in being, but different in function. And this relationship is meant to be viewed not as an oppressive, unfair relationship, nor is it to be viewed as a competition. Rather, it's to be understood as a beautiful, harmonious relationship, like a divine dance. Think of it as a divine dance. Too often we're made to think of the relationship between men and women to be some kind of competition when it's not. I remember many years ago, I had my two older kids join a basketball camp at the end zone. You know, the end zone has become quite a thing, right? Um, this church renovated a warehouse and they worship, you know, on, on Sunday, but then it's like a gym facility throughout the week. And over the summer, they have these, these like huge camps. And, and that year, uh, we, we sent our older two to basketball camp. My kids don't play basketball anymore. Uh, <laughs> But they, they had this uh, T-shirt that they were handing out to all the girls, okay? And I forget the exact language, but it was something like on the front in, in big text, girls are stronger than boys or something like that. Girls are faster, whatever. Girls are better than boys. Basically, they're trying to pit girls against boys. And so Stella brought that home, and Joyce, in her wisdom, said, oh, we're not going to have you wear that. And so the next day, she took it back to the camp and asked the director, uh, Mr. Director, uh, can we get a different, sh- is, there, is there another shirt my daughter can wear or have? And he's like, why? This is one of our most popular shirts. <laughs> and Joyce said, well, I don't like the fact that you're pitting girls against boys. It's not meant to be a competition. That's so all he could say was, oh, that's interesting. The, <clears throat> the relationship of authority And submission is to be compared to a dance and not compared to a fight or competition. You see the difference? I mean, both authority and submission are present in a dance. Both authority and submission are also present in a heavyweight bout, but they're two completely different things. Because in a fight, you're supposed to use your strength to show that you can beat the other person. That's expected. But in a dance, okay, I'm not, I'm not talking about dance-offs, okay? I'm not talking about head-to-head dance-offs. Right? Get that out of your minds. I'm talking about the kind of dance that requires two people to work together as partners, okay? And what makes the dance work is that there's both strength and weakness present and working together to create something beautiful and harmonious. That's why it's it's most beautiful when you have a male and a female together who know their roles and creating something beautiful for all to appreciate. That's also why something just doesn't look right when you have two men dancing together as partners. It's okay to say it's, it's weird. It's okay to say it's, it's awkward. Right? Two women dancing together is awkward too. Okay? Whether it's a dance or, or like marriage, it's, it's awkward, it's wrong. It right? Sh- shouldn't happen. Headship and submission does not imply that one is superior and the other is inferior. This, it's not a competition. It's more like a dance. And this dance is modeled after the divine dance 
that takes place in the triune headship of God. Let me take a moment to speak more practically, okay, so we can kind of clear, clear some things, uh, answer some of your questions that you may be asking in your heads right now. Here's what submission does not mean in the context of marriage. Submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. Submission does not mean living a mindlessly passive life. Okay, it's like, come on, of course you're going to at times disagree with your husband. That's, that's, an, <laughs> that's a given, right? But here's the thing, as, as a wife, I want to encourage you not to manipulate your husband. Right, by constantly nagging. Uh, and, and worse is when you speak disrespectfully to him. And if you do that repeatedly, guess what? He's going to check out. He's going to say, you know what? It's not worth it. What am I going to do? Am I going to fight you? you know? Am I going to pull my fist out? You can't do that with your wife. And so what, what, what other options are there but to just kind of let her take the reins and do whatever she wants to do and, and women know that. They know that. And so the, the most cowardly thing a woman can do is actually provoke a fight. Because they know that the man can't do anything. If the man does something that, you know, is throw him in jail, right? <laughs> uh, and so I want to encourage you sisters to consider your manner of speech. You're, you, you can respectfully state your opinions and thoughts and ideas and it's even okay to persuade and convince but you know when it comes down to it you have to let your husband take responsibility of leading the marriage and the family right? and husbands you if you make a decision you take responsibility right? that's on you also, submission does not mean putting your husband's will before the will of God. Like, if, you, if your husband asks you to sin, then guess what? You have all the rights, and you, you, you should say, no, I, I, can't, I can't do that. Right? Just, just as when the state asks us to disobey God, we, we can't obey the state. When there's a conflict that way, you always must appeal to God's authority over your life. God's will is always ultimate. Let me also say something about what, what quietness doesn't mean and what it does mean. You know, to be quiet here should not be taken to mean that women are to never teach in the church because the Bible clearly allows women to teach in certain contexts, such as in the context of older women teaching younger women, right? And women in general teaching children, right? That's... That's clearly laid out in Scripture, right? But it's clear also that women ought not to exercise authority over men, okay? And by the way, uh, some of you may disagree with me here. This is one reason why, as long as I'm serving as a pastor here, I will never be in support of hiring a female youth director, 
as the main leader over our teenagers. Because teenagers are no longer children. They are young men and young women. And I will never allow young men in the church to be placed under the authority of a pastoral figure who's a female over my dead body. Um, and I know that there are many other practical questions that can be raised here, but, you know, it's like, whatever you decide to do with all the questions you have, okay, one thing you definitely don't want to do is to dismiss these teachings as outdated, irrelevant, first century gibberish. They're not. Note the Apostle Paul does not say women should remain quiet and be submissive to their husbands because, look, this is what our first century culture is. I mean, come on. We've got we to gotta be relevant to our culture. He doesn't, say, he doesn't culturally condition this teaching. He says, no, you're to submit because Adam was formed first and not Eve. And so what he's doing is he's, he's making a theological argument that basically says, look, this is what God intended from the very beginning. This is built into the creation order. It, this transcends time and culture. There's a pastor friend of mine uh, serving in Northern California in the Silicon Valley area. And he shared with me a couple of years ago that the women there, and he's generalizing, okay, I'm not saying that all women are like that, but the women there tend to be more strong-headed and domineering with little regard for what the Bible teaches about gender. And so it's very hard for him to teach this stuff. But he's, he's, he's as bold as me. Okay? Uh, and, he, and he was telling me about his college friend uh, who got married to this woman and how they're having a really hard time in their marriage. Uh, he said that his friend was a bad husband, but that his wife was even worse. I mean, the guy would at least admit that he had flaws, but the wife would just never apologize. She would never admit to any, any wrong. And uh, she was a type who would very casually badmouth her husband in public while his husband was just sitting there like a dummy. And so my pastor friend spoke to her about it and said, look, seriously, like if... If my wife spoke like that to me in public, I would really get angry. And it would lead to a serious argument. And so if you want to save your marriage, he told her, you need to start obeying the Lord. And you have to start treating your husband with some respect. And you need to start submitting to him as your head. Will you be willing to do that? And her response at the time was no. I, I didn't get an update after that, but that was just like not surprising to me, sadly. Submission is not an easy thing. It goes against who we are as a sinful people. Part three, self-sacrifice. It says in our passage today, yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. By the way, if you're single here, not married, you're thinking, how does this all, this is like irrelevant. No, it's not, okay? Even if you're not married, these virtues still apply to you. 
Right? You can still embody these virtues. And the more you embody them, I, I guarantee you, the more attractive you will be to godly men around you. Just a side note there, okay? Now, this verse I just read, that she'll be saved through childbearing, it's very, it can be tricky, but to put it simply, it's saying, look, most women, not all women, obviously, but most women in life will be sanctified by becoming a wife and raising children. Right? And so this means that children should not be viewed as a major obstacle between you and your life goals. Rather, if you're healthy, I'm speaking mainly to the woman now, if you're healthy and if you're physically capable, raising children should be one of your primary life goals. It's God's expectation for you. And if you're not able to bear children for some reason, then finding other means to invest in children and to learn how to disciple the next generation should be one of your primary life goals because that's how God designed life to be. It's like when you observe a country's birth rate going down as we're, as we're experiencing now, have you, have you noticed there's, a, there's like a news, news flash this past week that our birth rate has dipped in the U.S. So you see the birth rate going down while the, while the rate of pet ownership goes up. That's when you know when these two things are happening, right? One's going down and one's going up. That's when you know the soul of the country is diseased. Right? That's when you know the country has lost its direction and it's on the path of more rapid moral decline. Brothers and sisters, we're believers, we're Christians, set apart for Christ. We're not to view motherhood as a third-rate job for losers who can't make it in the real world. Right? That, that's a lie straight from the devil. But that's the lie that's being spread all the time in our culture. Maybe not ex explicitly, but it's implied. Mothers, be reminded this morning that you have received the high calling from God to nurture life and to directly shape the hearts and minds of the next generation. You are life givers. You are bettering someone else's life by coming alongside of them and assisting them. Yes, motherhood is tiring and hard and, and moms can easily feel like slaves in the home. But what makes motherhood beautiful is the self-sacrificing nature of it. When women decide to bear a child and offer the child to the Lord, they're declaring a life of dying to self, essentially mirroring the, the life that Christ has shown us, laying down their lives for the sake of the child and the family. And so what you do every day as a mom is, is beautiful. What you do is noble, and it's godlike. So praise God for you. You know, sometimes... I'm asked the question, Pastor, should Christian women work outside the home? Okay, now I'm, I'm about to dig my grave now, okay? Um, should a Christian woman work outside the home? No, I, I can be very balanced here. I don't think um, most of you would 
disagree with. Maybe some of you would disagree. The biblical principle is this. But if you, if you do disagree, I, I want you to argue from Scripture, okay? Don't just state your opinion. The biblical principle is this. <clears throat> if you're a married woman, your primary commitment ought to be supporting your husband and raising godly children. That, that should be your primary investment. But if you have the extra giftedness, the extra time, the extra energy, uh, you're allowed to invest some of your time outside the home. Right? Biblically speaking, that's permissible. The problem, though, is that many people mess up that order. Okay? They, they, they mix their priorities. Right? It's personal career comes first, and then it's marriage and children, a far second. God's desire for women is that they treat marriage and raising godly children to be their first priority. And then they're to treat work outside the home as secondary. Like if work outside the home it gets in the way of what should be your first priority, that's when it becomes a problem. Okay, why is that controversial? Right? Unfortunately, it is controversial in our day. It shouldn't be. You know, Proverbs 31 uh, lays it out quite well, I think. Uh, in Proverbs 31, you read about a very capable wife who is primarily invested in the life of the family and home, but she's also involved in work outside the home. Right? Look, let me just read a few verses. She looks well to the way of her household, and her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. But then it also says, she considers a field and buys it. Okay, so she kind of knows how, how the world works too. I mean, she, she knows how to, you know, uh, she understands economics and she knows. Also how to garden, he says, with the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard on this field, right? She's not someone who kills all the plants in the house, okay? You know? <laughs> She's a life giver. She knows how to sustain life. It's in her nature. It shows. This is a blessing. She also makes linen garments and sells them, okay? So she, she has some business savvy, but she's also good with her hands. She actually makes... She's very resourceful. She makes things and she sells them. And she delivers sashes to the merchant. Right? So she's, help, she's helping to supplement household income here. You know, what a blessing this is. So you have these two dimensions. You have this primary investment in the home and the family, but also someone who's capable of working outside the home as well to some degree. But it's not career first and family second. Let me close with some words written by another female author. I think her name is pronounced Janie Ortland. I think you'll appreciate these words and I'll close, okay? Um, a bit lengthy here, but it's good content. She writes, Paul's word to me as an older woman is to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, she asks, why does the apostle have to tell us older women to teach things to the 
younger women or to teach these things because it can be hard to love your husband and children. In fact, it can be easier to minister outside the home. Now, why is it more rewarding for us to plan a ladies' retreat for 200 women than it is to plan an indoor picnic with our preschoolers on a rainy afternoon? I think it's because the rewards are more immediate and the demands are not so steady. So she's very honest about this stuff. But God has called you to this ministry of family. He knows there are no neutral moments in a young child's life whose experience is one of continuous need and development. Your children will bear the imprint of your mothering throughout their lives because much of human behavior springs from imitation. You are the only mother your children have. Your ministry to them is the deepest expression of your love for them. You have received this commission from God. As a mother, your privilege is to teach them how to respect their father and be kind to their siblings, how to choose good nutrition and wholesome entertainment, why they should value courtesy and orderliness, and which causes are worthy of their efforts, their reputations, and even their very blood. Are you discouraged as you spend day after day immersed in the mundane tasks of mothering? Are you? Then think of the value of teaching them eternal truths from God's word. Think of the importance of teaching your young children how to live under authority and of preparing them for the future. Think of the delight of one day sending your child into this world with the courage to live well for Christ's sake. What a worthy investment. So that puts things in perspective, right? So as I close this message, I, I like all of our moms to know that you are loved, you are deeply appreciated for who you are and what you do. Right? Your calling as a mother is an incredibly high calling that requires you to literally give yourself up for the sake of others. So thank you once again for modeling the gospel through your daily sacrifice towards your family. And even though it may be exhausting and you may feel like you want to throw in the towel at times, do not give up. God has caused you to motherhood, not only for the sake of others, but for your sake as well, and for the sake of the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for the women in our church and the work that you've been doing in shaping them into your people, making them more into your image every day. Today, we especially give you thanks for the gift and blessing of motherhood. And for all the moms who are busy and often overwhelmed by their daily responsibilities toward their families and children, encourage them this morning through your word and give them strength to persevere. May their outward adornment flow out of a heart that desires to make much of you. May their attitude towards you be one of humble submission. And may their regular pattern of life reflect the self-sacrificing nature of their Lord. As we honor our mothers today, we honor you as our wise God who has ordered all things in life to reflect what is most beautiful, noble, and true. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.